Good morning. That little video was a joy to make, spending some time with Daniel and hearing his passion for what God has done in his life just really lit a fire under him. Here's a guy who convinced his school to raise hundreds of dollars for goats for people across the world. Um, and just really neat stuff. We had a, like a 45-minute conversation, and it was just full of, of, of really uh, inspiring uh, things. So thank you, Daniel, for sharing. Um, thank you, Sharon, for your willingness as well. I know you don't, didn't want to be on camera, so thank you. I, I, I learned something there as well about uh, nurturing generosity as a parent in, in, in my kids and taking those opportunities to do that. So very encouraging. Thank you. I want to tell you a story. I'm borrowing this from a pastor friend of mine. I'll call it a story. We'll see if it's a joke or not. I, I think it's a joke. We'll call it a story. We'll let you decide. It's about a farmer. We live in Chilliwack, so this applies. Hey? It's about a dairy farmer. And this dairy farmer um, decided one day he was going to get, um, he had this wonderful cow. This was a this was, this was one of his best. And so um, this cow was pregnant. I don't know all the good terms that you're supposed to use as a farmer. So yeah, the cow, the cow was pregnant. And he decided, he was really excited. He came in the house one day and said, honey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give half, I'm going to sell the calf and I'm going to give half of the money to the Lord. Well, his wife was overjoyed because they had wanted to do something like this for a while, but for one reason or another, just, and they had never done this yet. And so she was excited that he was taking that step. And for this prized cow of theirs, they were going to sell the calf and half of it was going to go to the Lord. Well, a, a while later, he comes in the house and he is overjoyed. He's over the moon. He says, honey, you'll never guess what. The farmer says, the cow is pregnant with twins. This is amazing because what I, I just see God working in this because I, I offered to give half to the Lord and he's just so blessed us. Now there's a whole other calf coming. So we can sell one calf and give all of that to the Lord and keep the other for ourselves. This is such a blessing. See, look what God can do. Well, a while later he came in the home and this time he was distraught. And his wife said, oh, honey, what's wrong? And he looked at her and said, Honey, the Lord's calf died. <laughs> All right, it's a joke. It's official. I'm glad you like it. Unfortunately, that's often the way it is. Right? We, we look at our things, our possessions, and we say, okay, I need, I need to look after my needs and from that, we'll look at what we have left over and we'll give some of that to the Lord. But advertising pays a lot of money to tell us that our wants aren't wants. Our wants are needs. And so we're convinced, you know what, there are a lot of things that I need. And so I need to look after my needs. And once all my needs are met, of what's left over, I will give it to the Lord. But our hearts are often not so pure. And so some of our greeds, we are even convinced, are our needs. And so by the time that our needs and our wants and our greeds are met, wouldn't you know it? Oftentimes the Lord's calf has died and there's nothing left to give to the Lord. So, now that I've made most of us uncomfortable, welcome to Central this morning. 
We are on week two of a series we're calling, calling Generous, the Open Hands of the Gospel. If you're new to Central, I, I welcome you along. I'm glad you're here. To be honest with you, we talk very little about money around here, generally. But I've come to discover something, and that's the reason we're spending five weeks in this series, is that Jesus talked more about money than he talked about anything else. In fact, he talked more about money than he talked about heaven and hell combined. And if you were to sit down and read the Gospels, you'll notice that he actually talks about heaven and hell quite a bit. But he talks about money more than those two things combined. And so we here at Central want to be faithful to God's word and we want to be a faithful church that loved Jesus. And so, because Jesus talks about money, we find ourselves needing to address it too if we want to be faithful. So it's actually with great discomfort, to be honest with you, that I broach this subject. Many of you think, all right, a church talking about money, great. That's what you guys always do. Well, to be honest, I'm really apprehensive about it, and it's not comfortable for me, and yet Jesus talked about it a lot, and so to be faithful to Jesus, we need to go there. One of the reasons I think Jesus talked about money more than any other thing is this. Jesus was always after the heart. (laughs) Jesus is always after our hearts. So what does it say that he talks a lot about money? Well, we may be able to conclude that our hearts tend to drift towards great love of money. In fact, finding our security in money. And so Jesus talks about it again and again and again because he's after your heart. And to be honest, that's what I'm after too. This isn't some big pledge to boost our budget. That's not why we're doing this series. What I'm after in this is your heart that you would find joy and generosity, that you would encounter the gospel and it would affect your wallet. Because the gospel invades every facet of our lives. In fact, when we're baptized, our wallets get wet too. They get sanctified as well. And it actually shifts the posture of our hearts. We don't look like the culture anymore. We look different. That's the open hands of the gospel. So there you go. I want to quickly make note of something as well. Uh, a member of our lead team has made 100 copies of the treasure principle available. Just donated those. They want to just, uh, the heart behind this for us is just, this pairs really well with where we're going over these numbers of weeks. It's by Randy Alcorn, the treasure principle, unlocking the secret of joyful giving. Again, it's after your heart. These are for free in the foyer. Would love for your household to get a copy. They're they're free for you to take and grab. We want to bless you with it. We think it will uh, partner well with where we're going in this series. The heart behind it, though, is that you would read it and then you would, pa- you would pass it on to somebody. Maybe there's somebody in your life group, somebody in your life, and you have the opportunity to say, hey, have you read this book? I'd love to pass it on to you so that it wouldn't collect death, dust on shelves, but that other people could find joy in Jesus in the area of generosity when the majority of our culture is finding a lot of joy or at least searching for it in things. This goes against that. So let me read to you a passage that we're going to look at this morning. It's found in Luke chapter 18. Starting in verse 18, again, the books are uh, at a table in the foyer. You're welcome to take one on your way out. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18, this is a story about a rich ruler. Matthew and Mark also tell this story, and Matthew lets us know that it's a rich young ruler. Here's what the text says. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept since my youth. 
When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. There we are. But, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And and Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. There are two main points on the back of your bullets, and I'll, I'll tell them to you now. There's a few sub-points. We'll get them as we go along the way. Here are the two main points of really what I see stand out in this text. There will be a little bit of discomfort. Here it comes. First, Jesus is more demanding than you think. Jesus is more demanding than you think. We see it in this text. We see it in a number of texts. Jesus is more demanding than you think. And secondly, Jesus is more generous than you dare to hope. And we need to hear both of those things this morning, I believe. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Mornings like this, as we look at a text like this, many of us are tempted not to thank you for your word because it sounds like it requires something of us. It invites a response. It It causes us to need to wrestle through some things that might not be too fun. But Lord, I I am convinced that if we will engage a text like this in your word that you gave to a man 2,000 years ago and continue to give to those where money is an obstacle, Lord, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts in this. I pray your spirit would convict, your word would preach, and that a guy like me wouldn't get in the way of that. So, Lord, would you, um, would you move among us? May we learn these things, all in light of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is more demanding than you think. Doesn't that sound fun? I, I, I really, truly believe, though, that many of us think North American Jesus wouldn't ask anything of me. North American Jesus would never say anything that would challenge me. We are convinced that Jesus wasn't like that. Meek and mild, Jesus would never call me to chastity, singleness, or a life of simplicity, or overseas missions, or selling my stuff. We want Jesus, but not what he says. We want the securities and blessings with none of the calls to obedience and submission. If you don't believe me, look at the research of Lifeway Research Study surveying a thousand Canadian Protestant Christians. In this study of a thousand Canadian Protestant Christians, the study found that only 33% agree that a Christian must deny himself or herself in order to serve Christ. Only a third of Protestant Canadian Christians think you have to deny yourself to follow Jesus. So what do we do when we come across a text where Jesus looks a man in the eye and says, sell everything you have and follow me, and the man is sad and walks away and doesn't follow Jesus? 
Is there anything that a Christian must deny to follow Jesus? The answer in the scriptures is yes, but two-thirds of Canadian Christians say no. I want to read to you an extended excerpt from a great book by Jared Wilson called Your Jesus is Too Safe, Outgrowing a Drive-Through Feel-Good Savior. I'd like to read to you for a few moments on what he says really of, of our view in North American culture of Jesus. I pick it up mid-sentence where it says, No man is probably more misunderstood than Jesus. The great irony is that despite being the most discussed and confessed figure in all of history, no historical figure has been more marginalized and commoditized than Jesus. For many today, he is a generic brand, a logo, a catchphrase, a pick-me-up. He's been fictionalized by the last temptation of Christ, humanized by the passion of the Christ, and satirized by South Park. He's been romanticized by countless admirers and sanitized by the Christian consumer culture. Yes, even the church itself is guilty when it comes to the marketing of Jesus. We've put our own gloss on him, our own spin. It's no wonder the world doesn't get Jesus because we've spent decades selling a Jesus cast in our own image. Even our religious ancestors feared the stern taskmaster Jesus. This quasi-Puritan Jesus liked to smack you on the knuckles with a ruler when you got out of line. Later, we received postcard Jesus. The copper-toned, blonde-haired, blank-stare Jesus of the gold-framed portrait, a bland, two-dimensional figure occupying moral tales that help us to be better people. This flat portrait evolved into the get-out-of-hell-free Jesus. And this Jesus has inspired millions to say a prayer, to get his forgiveness, and then go on living lives devoid of his presence. In the 70s, this is my favorite part in the book, by the way, usually is when it starts with the 70s. <laughs> in the 70s, when pop culture merged with fundamentalism and phenomena like the Jesus movement, we promoted hippie Jesus, the Doobie Brothers saying, Jesus is just all right. And our parents all said groovy, and Jesus became a good buddy who was cool like us and hung out in a van down by the river and would never harsh our vibe. Because he liked rock music and wore blue jeans too. In the 1980s, we welcomed ATM Jesus. This Jesus is still quite popular today. You can go home and turn on your TV and learn that Jesus just wants you to be happy and successful, but most of all, rich. One of the more amusing caricatures today is Grammy Award Speech Jesus. Have you seen him? Tune in the next time the film or music industry is patting itself on the back for the stuff it produces and passes off as art these days. It's inevitable an artist who wins an award for a work celebrating promiscuous sex or wanton violence and filled with obscenity and profanity will then grace the stage and thank his or her Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. One night, Bono, the musical artist and prophetic provocateur, came to the podium after a few of these artists had thanked Jesus for their incongruent efforts and said something to the effect, I bet God is looking down and saying, don't thank me for that. Today we have an amalgamation of all and more of these Jesuses running rampant in the world and in the church. These versions of Jesus confuse the former and misrepresent the latter. In much of the church today we worship a convenient Jesus. We designate him our Lord and Savior, but this phrase tends to serve as merely a label that in our superficially spiritual lives belies his real function, our great example. He's there when we need to lean on him, but a bit out of mind when we feel more self-confident. 
He's role model Jesus. He's therapeutic Jesus. We know a bit about what he said and did in these gospels of ours, but not enough to be dangerous with it. And the stuff we do know, we frequently misunderstand or take out of context to suit our agendas. How often do you hear, judge not, lest ye be judged, or let he who is without sin cast the first stone? These are probably the two most often quoted of Jesus' many sayings, but not because we face a constant threat of legalistic judgment. Instead, it's because we want to justify how we live without the pesky burden of what Jesus requires of us. See, to really know God, one must truly know Jesus. And the little known fact that we like to ignore is that Jesus is more demanding than we think. The Jesus of our own imagination that we have twisted, that doesn't, isn't actually accurate to the scriptures, is no Jesus at all, only a Jesus of our own making and our own imagination. But we have to deal with the texts that say something other than that. We have to actually acknowledge, and I actually have to preach, the Jesus of the scriptures that actually says that our lives must look different in light of the gospel, or we have not been impacted by the gospel. but we like therapeutic Jesus, Jesus that we can add. And that's precisely where we're going here. Look at verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He starts with the term good teacher, and it was a term actually only attributed to God at the time, which means he either believed Jesus to be God in the flesh or was using thoughtless flattery. But either way, he begins by saying, good teacher and he's attributed attributing either that this is God's own son and if that's the case he still walks away sad not being able to respond in faith to what Jesus requires of him or he's using thoughtless flattery and doesn't actually take Jesus at his word either way he walks away not listening to the call that Jesus makes on his life he follows it up with a question and the question is this what must I do to inherit eternal life this this question Uh, is asked by other people at other times in the Gospels. Jesus responds actually differently to them, not the same response he gives this particular man. But with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, he's really asking a question that I believe, as we can work through this, he's actually saying something more like this. I've got a great life, but something's missing. What is it? What should I add to put me over the top? Or what's the one thing I'm not doing that I should do so that I know that I'm saved? Subpoint you can fill in or take a look at if you'd like is this. Jesus is not something we add. He revolutionizes who we are. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We often view Jesus as something we add to make our lives better. The notion that Jesus is what we need to put our personal goals and ambitions over the top. It's, very co- it's a very common thing to think that if we just added that one more thing to our lives everything would be perfect. This is a very, very common thread. In fact, Cynthia Heimel, not a believer, um, a feminist author, wrote in the Village Voice uh, a column entitled Tongue in Chic, said this about celebrity. I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he, gra- he grants you your deepest wishes and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. Again, not a believer, so she has a p- certain picture. 
You see Sly, Bruce, and Barbara wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened. And they were still them. And the disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. These celebrities, she's saying, like so many of us, think that if that, that one thing gets added to our lives, all will be well. Happiness and fulfillment will be ours if we just get over the top, that one step further up on the mountain. Jesus doesn't work that way by his grace. Our hearts must be totally reoriented to a new way of thinking and living. A totally different paradigm is what Jesus is saying. He wants to blast through that mountain that we're trying to climb and say, it doesn't work that way at all. In fact, you are to give me the keys, and as you give me the keys to your life, I'm going to come and I'm going to renovate completely. Jesus says, see all that you have, sell all that you have, and follow me. It speaks of revolutionizing the way the rich young ruler approached life. You can't simply add Jesus. When we invite Jesus into our lives, he moves in and renovates our hearts. And it's one of those renovations that actually goes right down to the studs. See, if we're talking about a building project, the the rich young ruler wanted to make an addition, an extra bedroom in the back. But Jesus says, if you want to encounter me, I'm going to renovate the whole thing. I'm going to strip it down to the studs and rebuild it and absolutely renovate it. If you want to give me the keys to your heart, I'm going to come in and I'm going to renovate completely. It's not just a weak addition or a little extra. It's a total revolution in our lives. Tim Chester and Steve Timmis in their book, Everyday Church, put it this way. We build our lives around our identity. Everybody does. Around how we see ourselves. If you see yourself first and foremost as a businessman or a housewife or a professional, then you will build your life around this with church as part of an orbiting fringe of activities. But if you see yourself first and foremost as a member of God's missional people, then you will build your life around this identity. Jobs, houses, and incomes all still matter, but they are made to fit around your core identity, a member of God's missional community. That's what a disciple of Jesus is. That's the core identity. Everybody puts their identity somewhere, and the identity of the Christian is disciple of Jesus Christ, a member of God's missional community. That's who I am. That's why I'm here. That's the way I view life. And so when we take that on, it absolutely changes everything. Other things still matter, but to a completely different end than if the other ends were what we were looking. In other, way, in other words, a Jesus life is a gospel-oriented life, not just touched a little bit by Jesus over here, or we add him here, or we like to participate here or there, but it's an absolute gospel-oriented life. And this is actually a theme throughout all the scriptures. God has relationship with a man named Abraham, and he says he's going to bless Abraham, he's going to give him a family, and he's going to give him a nation. He's going to bless him in all of these ways. Well, then his son Isaac is born, his, and, 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 and what does he say to him? Go and sacrifice your son Isaac on an altar. What, what, what God wants to remind Abraham is don't put your... Um, hopes and your dreams in your son, put your hopes and your dreams in the covenant that I have made with you. And Abraham actually submits his life to God in that way and is willing to go there. But God is after the heart of Abraham, not the sacrifice of his son. And so he spares his son. 
In the same way, in John chapter 8, we see that, that, that um, there is a group of people that are going to stone an adulterous woman. And Jesus tells them, you know, if you haven't sinned, cast the first stone. But, and, and, he tur- and nobody does. And so he turns to the woman and says, nor do I condemn you either. But then he says something else. Now go and leave your life of sin. She's encountered Jesus. He says he does not condemn her, but he instructs her, he demands something of her. Don't go back to your adulterous life. Why? Because our lives get revolutionized by Jesus. They don't look the same after. We don't get to just have a little dabble of Jesus and then go back to our merry old ways. It absolutely revolutionizes our hearts. And we long for Jesus, and we long to look differently in light of the gospel. In Matthew chapter 5, There is a word that Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount where he says this, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I was talking with Pastor Chris earlier this week and he was having a conversation with a a, a young man um, a while back who, who, who just kept struggling with pornography over and over and over again. He didn't want to participate in that. He didn't want to do that. Um, He felt as though that was sin. And so Chris looked him in the eyes and said, would it be too much to get rid of your computer? And the young man looked back at him and was bewildered. What? Get rid of my computer? That's crazy. Jesus goes on to say, better to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. No matter what topic we bring up here, um, we see that Jesus is after the heart, and if there's something that's in the way that's going to cause you to sin, this, that, 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 you, that, that has really grabbed your heart, give it up, Jesus is saying. Loosen your grip on it. And that's a really wise word. Look, I, I, I look at all of these things. I've got a lot of hope and dream, hopes and dreams wrapped up in my kids. I, as your pastor, am not a guy who is not prone to look at a woman with lustful intent. That's not beyond me. There isn't temptation that's not beyond me with my computer and where I could go with that. I, I struggle. I have temptation around all of those things. I have temptation around what I do with my money. And most of the time, I want to spend it on me. The question is, for me and for all of us, is how will we respond to the gospel? How will we respond to uh, the conviction in our hearts of what Jesus is calling us to and how he is calling us to? Do you know what Jesus is ultimately after? He's after our hearts being for him. It's the second sub-point there is that, that he must be your treasure. Let me read part of the text to you again. Jesus said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, He became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I've told you just recently, as I've I've given you all all these examples of our hearts going elsewhere, I, I really love new trinkets and toys and gadgets and the latest electronics. I really love them. I, I know that. I'm very aware of that. In fact, my wife and I signed up for a cable plan lately uh, um, that uh, we got a free TV. 
What that means essentially is they're going to make you pay for that for a good number of years. It's not free at all, but I, we got a free TV. Well, can I tell you, my, the last TV I bought was like nine years earlier, and I, I found it to be very insufficient for the task. And so nine years ago, like literally, like regularly since I got my last TV, I... I, I did the research that, that any really good steward of your resources is going to do, right? I mean, you're going to study what's a wise decision for me to make around my next TV. So I studied this regularly, some could say almost weekly, just checking uh, what the latest, you know, HD quality of screen was. And, you know, and, you know like I had a 37-inch TV before. I mean, that's really, really small on today's terms. And so I was like, well, you know, what would look at on our wall? I mean, our couch is pretty close to our wall, so, you know, a 70-inch is maybe a little much, right? So right, I was just gauging all these things and researching all of that stuff. And so can I be honest with you? I got a new TV about a month ago. It's a 40-inch. But I have already researched my next TV. Because what I found, really, right after I got this new TV is that there's 4K resolution. I mean, it's far more brilliant than what I was just given. And so I'm starting to think about how to get that 4K resolution. And it's a 40-inch. That's what came with my plan. And here's the thing. I'd rather, I'd rather have a 50-inch so that I can watch my team lose on, in the playoffs on it, right? Because... <laughs> What better way to see your team lose in the playoffs than it, to be more crystal clear and bigger? And, and to be honest, the TV that's on in our house is mainly really annoying children's programs. And so if we're going to have really annoying children's programs on TV, why not make that TV really big and even more crystal clear, right? And yet, my heart, as ridiculous as all of that is, it's like, I, I kind of want, I, I'm bored of the TV I got last month. And I know there's better ones. Sound familiar? So Jesus looks at this man and says, you've kept the whole law since you were little? Let's start with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Is your wealth before me? Sell everything you have and follow me. And this man gets downcast and walks away grieved. This man has said, I've kept all of these things since I was a little kid. I've kept the law perfectly. And Jesus says, you have? Let's start at the beginning about having no gods before me. Is your money before me? Can you sell your stuff to follow me? Not only that, I'm making a promise in the statement. You'll have eternal treasures that will pay back dividends compared to what you've got now. He still walks away sad. He said that he had no gods before God. And yet Jesus just touches on the first commandment. So let me ask you the question. What would you do if you were in his shoes? Let me ask you an even more bold question. Is Jesus saying this to you? Sell what you have to follow me. I know a number of people that have sold what they've had to follow Jesus. Sometimes it goes along with overseas missions. You have to leave your really good job there's a young missionary couple in our church, Tyler Schultz, was a partner in an accounting firm. So what came with global missions for them was to leave the firm. That meant leaving the Toyota truck that I would occasionally covet as he drove up in it. 
That meant leaving the RV. That meant leaving the motorcycle. But they felt called, and they felt called to leave that lifestyle, that, those kinds of resources, because it was part of the call. But I would say to some of us, the global call might not be there for us, but what remains is Jesus is still after your heart, and some of you need to sell what you have. Because it's a heart issue. Here's the thing, though. Many of us will very quickly say, Jesus doesn't ask this of everybody. And you're absolutely right. In fact, he doesn't ask it of anybody else, from what I can see in the scriptures. He doesn't say this anywhere else. Sell everything you have in order to be a Christian. That's not the mandate. That's not what he says. I don't see it anywhere else. But to the person whose God is money, he unequivocally says it again and again and again. Don't let it be your God. See, if you're quick to look for an out to this statement of sell everything you have, this statement might be for you. When we are looking for things to give us that kind of joy, when we are looking for things to give us, like flat screen, flat screen TVs to give us what they can't give us and they never do and we just keep chasing them and we keep upgrading, when it becomes not a way to worship God, but a worship God, we may find ourselves in trouble. I talked about this last week, about, about good things being means. God calls money and possessions good things. They're not bad. They're not even ambiguous. They're good things, but they're means. So when we enjoy the delicious steak, it's a means to say, praise God. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a vegetarian. <laughs> and that I can eat this, and it's so good. Every blessing is to be directed back to God to say, thank you, Lord. That's what it's meant for. But when we, when we revel in the thing, the means, and never get to thank you, God, money might be a problem. J.C. Ryle put it this way, many are ready to give up everything for Christ's sake, except one darling sin. And for the sake of that sin are lost forevermore. The love of money secretly nourished in the heart is enough to bring a man in other respects moral and irreproachable down to the pit of hell. The reason I like to quote old dead guys sometimes is because they tell it like it is. And I'm a little bit too nervous to do that sometimes. So I quote to you, J.C. Ryle. The rich young ruler goes away grieved. Jesus zeroed in on his God and the man wouldn't part with it. He looked moral otherwise. He was wealthy. He looked good. He was upright. In fact, he believed that he kept all the law. Excepting one darling sin. Is there a darling sin in your life? There are a few that try to take over my heart regularly. Jesus goes on to say how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There's some debate about this particular statement, that in fact maybe at the time there was a, a really, really low gate at night, and so for a camel to go through it, they needed to really crouch down, and it was really tight. It was doable, but very, very tight, and, and, and they could get through. That's been one interpretation. The problem is that interpretation showed up in the 4th century, and there's no 1st century evidence for such a gate, for such a, a space. I'm going to argue something for you that seems to make perfect sense in the context and that what Jesus was doing is he was pointing to the biggest animal around and that was a camel. And then he was pointing to something really, really small. He'd use a, mu a mustard seed on another occasion but it doesn't work in this context. So he says the eye of a needle. You know that really, really small part that you put the thread through? Camel, through the eye of the needle. What's he saying? It's impossible. But then what does he go on to say? What's impossible for man 
is possible for God. He's showing them an impossibility and then saying, but it's possible in me. But let me back up for a second. The disciples see Jesus tell this man to sell all that he has, that he will have treasure in heaven and to follow him. The man goes away sad. Jesus, we see in Mark, Jesus looked at him and loved him even in that moment, but allows him to walk away. He goes away sad. Jesus says how difficult it is for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. And then the disciples are shocked and they say, then who can be saved? You know why they say that? Because the, this is the premise in their mind that, that connected with wealth was, the, was, it was generally seen as evidence of divine blessing. And in some ways, in some places, in some people, it still is, right? That person must be really blessed by God. Look how well they're doing. And that was what was in the disciples' mind. So why is it so hard for rich people to be saved? Who possibly can be saved? What the disciples are saying is if those at the top of the ladder who enjoy God's rich material provision don't get in, then who does? Let's look at the earlier part of Luke chapter 18 to try and answer this a little bit together. There's a story, a parable Jesus tells at the beginning of Luke 18 about a Pharisee and a tax collector. They go up to the temple to pray and um, the Pharisee is praying about how great he is. Thank you God that I'm not like this and I'm not like that because, well, I'm pretty awesome and I'm pretty good and I'm not like that guy. Well, why? Well, because I'm moral and I'm right and I follow this. That's really his prayer. His prayer to God is a prayer of, I am awesome. Then there's a tax collector who comes, and he doesn't even come close to the temple mount. He doesn't feel worthy. And he just prays, probably over and over and over again. I've stood at the wailing wall in Jerusalem, and men just get into a rhythm of praying prayers, and that their heads are nodding. And I just believe that this man stood there saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. From a long distance off, That man went home justified. Why? He was humble before God. He had need and he knew it and he relied on God and he prayed for grace. Then the next story, and this is before this story about the rich young ruler in all the synoptic gospels, there are a pile of little ones, little children running to Jesus and the disciples are like, hey, stop it, stop it, stop it. The adults are talking, kids. Hey, kids, the adults are talking. We're having adult time. Get out of here. And Jesus says, no, let them come to me. Let them come to me. And they even, he picks them up into his lap. He brings the children close. And he says, only those with faith like children will see the kingdom. The kingdom belongs to children, Jesus says, to those who receive the kingdom as humble dependents. So taking these two stories and then taking the story of the rich young ruler and the disciples asking the question, then who could be saved? Well, the answer is in all of this, the little and those in need. The humble and those that know they need Jesus. So if I were to go to a starving mother in Ethiopia and walk up to her and saying, God will deliver you. I have great news. God is going to deliver you to the starving mother in Ethiopia. She would say, praise God, I need delivering. But if I walk up to the affluent businessman in Chilliwack and say, the Lord will deliver you. This is a little tongue in cheek, but he might say, well, I have insurance and savings for that. I don't need to be delivered. Jesus offers us his kingdom, but we've got our hands full. And he says, let me give you the kingdom. And we say, okay, just put it on top. I want to add it on. I want to have all my stuff. I want to live my life my way, but just throw it on. He says, no, it's, it's too big. It's too grand. It's all that fits. 
It's the only orientation that your heart can have. It's the kingdom of God. I want to I give it to you. Well, my hands are full. I've got an LCD screen here. It's 4K. It's 50 inch. I, how can I fit the kingdom on top? It's, it, it's too precarious. I can't do it. <laughs> so we walk away without the kingdom. It's our, why? Because functionally, money's our God. Now, many people have, many people have the impression and verbalize it regularly that the church is always after my money. I think there's a growing skepticism in the church around this, right? The church is after my money. I've said from the get-go, we don't talk about money a lot around here, not nearly as much as Jesus does. <laughs> but there's a growing skepticism. And when there are pastors that are actually raising funds for their own $65 million jet, the skepticism tends to grow sometimes. And I'm really sorry about that. In some ways, I am after your money. This is no budget-raising thing. After your money, because then as you loosen your grip on your money, your heart rejoices and, and sings in the gospel and the generosity that comes with it. And that's what I'm after for you. See, giving of the first fruits of your wealth simultaneously does two things. It guards your heart against idolatry and fuels the mission of the church around the world. How does it guard our hearts against idolatry? Well, when we give generously, we actually have need of God. So for, uh, for, for different ones of us, generosity looks differently. For, for some of us, if I were to throw out the number of 10%, for some of us, that would take a lot of faith to give 10% to the Lord off the top. That would take a lot of faith. Why? Things would get tight. Things would get simplified in our lives. For some of us, though, 10% is not a drop in the bucket. If we gave 10%, doesn't hurt at all. What Jesus is after is your heart. He wants to guard your heart. He wants you to give generously so that it hurts a little bit. Because if you give in such a way that it hurts, it shows that your heart is generous, that you're willing to do it for the sake of the gospel. And not only that, it fuels kingdom ministry. The idea we talked about last week about Psalm 67, that we've been blessed to be a blessing to the nations. And I have to believe that be our God being sovereign and blessing us so richly that he's done it for great purpose. And that great purpose is that we can be a light to the nations and proclaim the gospel throughout the world and really have an impact in our communities as well. We're giving to God so that we need him and we have to trust him all the time. Do you give in such a way that you actually have to heap your dependence on God? I wonder. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches us how to pray, and he says, give us this day our daily bread. That should be your prayer. What you need for today. Be generous with the rest. Be, be kind. Fuel the kingdom ministry with the rest. I'll give you what you need and pray to that end. In Proverbs chapter 30, Proverbs is a book of wisdom. There's only one prayer in it, and the prayer is this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. And then finally, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to, be, to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. See, we are meant to enjoy it, but we are not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. They are to do good, that's rich people, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's precisely what Jesus says to the rich young ruler. Prepare yourself treasure in heaven by selling what you have, being gracious with what God has given you. We treat money and possessions differently when we've been affected by the gospel. We view our material blessings as blessings for the global kingdom purposes of God. See, Jesus is more demanding than you think. 
He's not to be an add-on, but is to be everything. Nothing can come before Jesus. He will not rival other treasures in your life. He will not come second. Jesus must be our treasure. He will not have it any other way. That sounds awfully demanding. We've been looking at the demands that North American Jesus doesn't seem to make, but that the real Jesus seems to make. But now let's look at the promises of Jesus that quickly follow, for he just layers them in this story as well. Because some of you are really nervous right now. I want to share with you this point. Jesus is more generous than you dare to hope. Jesus says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. How can anyone be saved if not this rich young ruler who looks like elder material? He looks put together. If not him, then who? What's impossible with men is possible with God. Jesus can do the impossible and change hearts and priorities. In fact, a man named Nicodemus came across Jesus and asked the exact same question. He comes to Jesus at night. What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, you must be born again. Different answer to a different man. But for Nicodemus, what he needed was rebirth. He needed regeneration. It goes on to tell us that that's the work of God. It's God who draws the heart. It's impossible then. He's telling Nicodemus something he can't do on his own, but he needs God for it. What's impossible for man, though, to be reborn is possible for God. You know what's amazing? Nicodemus shows up again in the Gospels. Jesus is crucified and laid in a tomb. Do you know who tends to his body? A couple people. One of them's Nicodemus. This rich, successful, older man comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you must be born again. And he was. He can do the impossible. Romans 1.16 says this, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the good news. It's power. There's an interesting passage about Jesus being more generous than we dare to hope, a passage at the beginning of Luke chapter 19, and it follows in every synoptic gospel. I'm going long, and I apologize. I have to. It's one of those I have to. I'll go short sometime, I promise, maybe in 2017. The story of Zacchaeus comes up after this story in every gospel, every synoptic gospel that tells the stories. Zacchaeus encounters Jesus. Z Jesus says, I'm going to your house today. And Zacchaeus comes down the tree, right? We know this. If you've been in Sunday school, you know this story. They go to his house. Je Zacchaeus encounters Jesus and declares on his own, Jesus never says, sell all that you have, but Zacchaeus declares after encountering Jesus, I've cheated some people and I'm going to pay them back four times what I cheated them because Zacchaeus encountered Jesus and realized that that was the great treasure. And because Jesus and the gospel is the great treasure, Zacchaeus' former God, and he had a lot of money, became nothing to him. And he said, I want to use this to make things right. I want to use this in light of the gospel. And his heart was transformed by the gospel which affected his money and Jesus didn't need to say a word about what he should do with his money. Why? Because Zacchaeus encountered Jesus and Jesus is more generous than you dare to hope. What the rich young ruler hoped for but refused to embrace by following Jesus, disciples of Jesus are receiving. He came put together, moral and successful, and yet asked, what do I still lack? Why do I feel as though I'm missing something? Well, Jesus wasn't his treasure. Money was his God, and it didn't satisfy the way only Jesus can. 
So the things you will leave cannot compare to what you receive. Look at the last couple of verses. Peter said, see, Jesus, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. I talked about the Schultzes selling everything and going. Uh, People have done it. I've, I, I, I've heard stories of people who've come to faith, like, like uh, with the Sikh religion, for example, where, where uh, somebody's come to faith in Jesus and their family has disowned them. If you sell what you have to give to Jesus, and the gospel spread in the world, if you go across the world, if you, if you being a person of faith affects your relationships, Whatever it might be, if you leave your family from time to time for a number of days to proclaim the gospel somewhere and reach people with the kingdom of God, that kind of ministry, if you do that, if you make those kinds of sacrifices, do you know what? There are promises that says, in this age and in the age to come, there will be infinitely more blessing. What he's saying to um, his disciples who left their fishing businesses and their tax collecting booths, their fishing nets and their families to follow Jesus. Jesus responds, you have no idea the army of riches that are being and will be lavished on you. You can't outgive me. I know this from personal experience. When I came to Central, for whatever reason, I was interviewing with a few churches and it's the way the Lord works sometimes. You know what church that Emily and I felt compelled to come to? The one that was offering us a part-time role, not a full-time role. Employment-wise, like, right, this is the way God works sometimes, isn't it? I need to provide for my family, but the door that we truly see God leading us in is the part-time role. Lord, what do we do? Our faith had never... (sighs) Pastor Ron is a very convincing man. (laughs) No, we just, the Lord was, was leading us here. We truly believe that. Our faith was so stretched in those days because we went to a risky place. I'm not saying that to make much of me. It was terrifying. And I wanted to upgrade my TV. And how do you do that with part-time work? <coughs> you know what? We, I, I would go to pick up the bulletin out of my, my, my envelope there in our copy room, and there would be an envelope of cash. Somebody would come to my door at Christmas when we had no gifts to give our family with a check that would, would pay the bills we weren't paying that month and would allow us to buy our little son and our family members little, little Christmas trinkets. We had our needs met over and over and over again by the generosity of some of you. Our needs would not have been met had not these promises been true, and I tell you that they are. Any faith risk you will make, whatever the Lord is impressing on your heart to make for the sake of the gospel, for the reach of the church in the world, for poverty, be, poverty to be alleviated, for, the, for all of it, will not compare to how he will meet your needs. If you lose family, you're going to gain the church family. If you lose money, you're going to have some nice people slip in envelopes of cash in the back pocket. Right? I know it always doesn't equivalent to that, right? I talked about the Ethiopian Christian woman starving. doesn't mean you get money in your back pocket because you follow God. But the riches that he will give, the blessings that he will pour out, the army of riches that he will lavish on you now and forever far outweigh 
any of the gods you may be worshiping in your life here and now. J.C. Ryle put it this way, friends have often proved faithless, royal promises have often been broken, riches have made themselves wings, but Christ's engagements have never been known to fail. Let us press onward with a strong persuasion that if we lose anything for Christ's sake, Christ will make it up to us even in this present world. What believers need is more daily practical faith in Christ's words. Write these ones down. The latter verses of the rich young ruler, he will lavish blessing on you in a rounded way if you will follow him by faith. Lastly, and then I'll send you to dinner time. There are a couple parables that are a couple of my favorites. They're found in Matthew 13, 44 to 46. Right, just a few verses, two parables, back to back. This, this is my final point, that you are his treasure. Jesus must be our treasure, but you are his treasure. Look at these parables. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The treasure is the gospel. The pearl is the gospel. And when we truly encounter it like Zacchaeus, nothing else matters. There is nothing that Jesus can't touch so that we can grasp the gospel, so that it can be ours. Nothing. But can I tell you that you can also flip this parable on its head in another way? And you know what that way is? Let me read to you a passage, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Can I tell you something? Jesus was the most radical giver who ever gived. The right hand of the Father, eternity past, in the heavens, all the riches are his, descends to poverty and and goes into human form, fully God, fully man, sacrifices his life, becomes poor so that we can become rich. Jesus, though fully God, did that for our sake. And in this sense, Jesus is the man, the world is the field, and you are the hidden treasure. Jesus is the merchant pursuing fine pearls, and you are the pearl of great price. And when he discovered you, He sold everything to have you. He left the heights of heaven. He bore your sin. He took upon himself the cross. He poured himself out every last penny for you, for you are his treasure. You know why he he confronted not with North American Jesus' words, but with Jesus' words, why he confronted the rich young ruler? Because he wanted to be the man's treasure. Because he was Jesus' treasure. You are his treasure. That is precisely what he is after. Jesus wants your heart. May nothing stand in the way of that. I'm going to pray. The band is going to play you out with a song. You're welcome to stick and linger and sing that song with us. We also know that there are children probably off the walls right now. So we want to send you off to get them if you have some. Let me pray for us, and we will close in that way. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us so much that you gave up everything to have us. I pray that we would be more like Zacchaeus and less like the rich young ruler. I fear, Lord, that more of us than want to admit it have a heart like the rich young ruler and not like Zacchaeus. 
But what is impossible for a man, this heart of stone, and we dig in our heels, and we just want our comforts, we want our TVs, we want our luxuries. And yet you have blessed us to be a blessing and to reach the nations. You have blessed us so that the gospel can have impact and we have the means to bring it. Oh Lord, we are here for a cause, not for one long extended vacation. I pray that, Lord, we would see that. And what you're saying, and most of all, you're after our hearts because we're your treasure. Where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. May you be it. So God, God, I pray that we would continue to be impacted by the gospel in such a way that our lives are forever changed and that these kinds of measures seem like no great thing because the gospel is that good. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you. Thank you for exhibiting grace to me and letting me preach like a maniac this morning. Go in peace. Love you so much. Have a great week. We'll see you here next week for Baptism and Ministry Partnership Celebration. Bless you.